Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Hello, and welcome back to the Evoking History Podcast. Today, it is my extreme pleasure to have Brad Pomerantz, who currently serves as the host of Air, Land, and Sea, a global travel series broadcasting weekly on the national cable network Jewish Live Television, North America's premier Jewish-themed television network, available in over 45 million homes through Bell, Comcast, DirecTV, Spectrum, and other video providers. How are you doing today, Brad? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Benjamin. I'll thank you. So we're going to talk a little bit about Jewish history in the Iberian Peninsula today. And why don't we first start a little bit of what you telling us a little bit about yourself, Brad? Sure. So I am a history nerd. I love history. I love everything about history. And I'm a Jewish American myself. And I would say that I'm very, very Jewish kind of culturally. I don't know a ton about the Bible. Um, or about necessarily faith. I mean, I am a person of faith, but I, I would call myself somewhat of an expert in terms of the history of the Jewish people, especially in, I guess, after the Common Era. And so I am so incredibly lucky and fortunate. I'm a television host at Jewish Life Television, as you said, and over the last five years or so, I've hosted this television show called Air, Land, and Sea, where we travel around the world, literally, and we do these travelogues documentaries about the history of the Jewish people, both historically and modern day. I have been to the Iberian Peninsula a couple of times doing these travelogues about uh, Jewish history and Jewish people uh, today and in the past, uh, sponsored by, for example, Visit Portugal, uh, Visit Spain, because in the end, these tourism bureaus are looking to bring folks to their locations. And in the final analysis, so many people enjoy history as part of their travel. Sure, they want to go to the beaches, but they also want to learn about history. And um, so that's what we're giving them on Air, Land, and Sea, which airs on Sundays at 9 o'clock p.m. on Jewish Life Television. But that's another conversation. And, uh, yeah, so recently we took a trip to Portugal, starting literally at the top and uh, traveling all the way down. And it was just amazing. And that's why uh, you were kind enough to invite me to talk about that trip and what we learned about what is called the Portuguese Sephirod. Uh, Sephardic Jews are those that uh, hail from the Iberian Peninsula, which is Spain and Portugal. Ashkenazi Jews, a term you may have heard, are Jews that hail from Central and Eastern Europe. Yes. And how did 
the show get its start? Was this something that you pitched or was it something someone approached you to host? I wish I could say it was my idea, but it wasn't. <laughs> I uh, I had been working at Jewish Life Television hosting a, a, an interview-oriented show. And um, there, uh, the, the CEO at the time, he somehow was connected to the Tourism Bureau from Jamaica. And our my very first trip was to Jamaica, which ironically is also a Sephardic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, today in America and in Canada, well over, I mean, I would say probably 90% of those of us who are Jewish descend from Ashkenazi Jews, a small part descend from Sephardic Jews, which is part of what we're going to talk about today and why those numbers are so skewed. But, um, but Jamaica is a Sephardic story. And, um, and it was kind of took it from there because I'm, I'm Ashkenazi. And so, but I've so enjoyed, boy, I can't tell you, Benjamin, learning about the Sephardic story because it's, it's a beautiful one, a tragic one, and it's, it's humbling in a lot of ways. Yeah, I can imagine so. Uh, and I will admit that uh, despite my training as a historian, I, I don't know as much about the Sephardic Jews as I do about the Ashkenazi. Yeah. Well, you, you and most of the world, including most Jews, mm-hmm. I mean, the world um, is so kind of uh, Central and Eastern European centric as it relates to the Jewish story. And that's in large part, in my opinion, because of the Holocaust. It's mm-hmm. recent. And uh, mo- again, as I said, 80, 90% of Jews living today descend from Central and Eastern European Jews. And so it's not a surprise that to the extent Jews or non-Jews, whoever know about Jewish history generally, it's going to be Central and Eastern European focus. So believe me, you're not alone in not knowing a lot about the Sephardic story. Sure. And I do want to get to the Portugal aspect um, and, and talk about that. But could you say a little bit about the, the link in Jamaica? Oh, it, it's amazing. So it, it, follow me, if you will. And it's relevant to the story I'm about to tell in terms of Portugal. So before the, the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisition, the center of the Jewish world was the Iberian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. There were over a million Jews in Iberia, whereas in Central and Eastern Europe, there wasn't even 100,000. I mean, Spain and Portugal, the center of the Jewish world. So we have the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisition, and what happens is um, the Jews have to flee, and we'll explain that later. And they, many of them go to uh, Holland because the Dutch were accepting Jews at the time. And by the 1600s, uh, so this is, they're going to Holland in the 1500s. In the 1600s, they are, uh, the, the Dutch have conquered the east coast of Portugal. I misspoke. The east coast of Brazil. And a lot of Jews went to Brazil as part of this conquest. Well, within 50 years, um, the Portuguese reconquered the east coast of Brazil and reimposed the Inquisition. So the Dutch Jews, the Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, uh, Brazilian Jews had to get out. 
And so they had to find places to go because the Brazilians, the Portuguese in Brazil, uh, would not accept them. And so they were looking for islands in the Caribbean that would accept them because they didn't want to go all the way back to Holland. And there were only two islands, essentially, in the Caribbean that were not under Spanish and or Portuguese dominion. And that was Jamaica and Barbados. Those were British. And yeah. so that's how... Jamaica became a somewhat of a hub for former Portuguese and Spanish Jews is through that route I just told you, Spain, Portugal, Holland, Brazil, and then they wind up in Jamaica. And they were there for many, many centuries and were uh, a significant part of uh, the Jamaican society. Maybe 10% of uh, white Jamaicans were Jewish into the 1800s. Ultimately, a lot of them fled, not for any reasons of persecution, but they were lured by the American Revolution. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And the reality is the very first Jews in America were essentially from the Caribbean through the route I just told you. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, uh, the very first Jews were Sephardic Jews coming through uh, Jamaica and Barbados. Yeah, that is a truly fascinating yeah. um, journey there. Um, that's something that I didn't realize. And, uh, uh, I had no idea before I wrote the show. So again, first um, there. Yeah. Um, I want to take a moment, and I hate to interrupt our conversation, but as you can probably hear, in this time of COVID-19, I'm working from home, and they are doing some work on some of the other apartments in my complex. So if you hear construction noises, I apologize, but that's what it's from. <clears throat> So that was was that the first episode then of your the the show then was about right. the the Jamaican experience and then it, it just kind of expanded from there. It was so Jamaica. This will not be in order, but uh, Jamaica, Barbados, uh, in Europe, uh, Spain, Portugal, Czech, Germany. Um, We've been to Taiwan, if you can believe it. Uh, we've done episodes on Nevis, U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, Cuba. Um, you know, it's, uh, oh, we were recently in Japan uh, in a province called Gifu. Um, they have their own, we call it Japanese Schindler. Um, and it's, it's been, you know, we're about on our 20th episode. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of, of where we've gone and how fortunate I am to be able to learn so much about these stories. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll get to travel again. Hopefully, yeah. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. Well, I'm completely in awe, not only of the, the history that you're doing, but also the travel. Um, Thank like you. many people, I, I myself enjoy travel, even though I didn't start doing it until I was in my 30s. Yeah. Um, and uh, have unfortunately only pretty well been to to europe uh, of all the places that you've traveled i always like to ask this and my well-traveled guests what is the your favorite place that you've been and why so i guess i i have kind of two answers of that um as a descendant of ashkenazi jews central and eastern european jews i feel very connected to that region 
Um, and so when I traveled to Poland, it was, um, and, and even Germany and Czech, I'm really more Polish, but even those Central and Eastern European countries, I feel extremely connected mm -hmm. to that region. Um, you know, there are a lot of Jewish Americans who say when they go to Israel, they feel like they've come home. They feel like they've been there, they're connected. I love Israel. If you haven't been, you should go, Jewish or non-Jewish. It's a beautiful, amazing place. No, I, I would love to. Yeah, my, my like that visceral connection, I feel that in Central and Eastern Europe. Okay. Um, that being said, Portugal and Spain are absolutely majestic. Yes. I mean, Portugal is so beautiful. You can't even imagine. Um, and the Caribbean's beautiful, but I was very taken by Portugal uh, on so many levels. I haven't had the pleasure of going to Portugal yet, but having been to Spain last summer, I definitely right. agree that it's oh, just so, yeah. so gorgeous. Yeah, you know. Um, they're similar, but they're different. Yeah. Similar, but they're different. Okay. Um, I want to to do a follow up to the, your your comment about Central Europe and, and going yeah. to Poland and Germany. Yeah. Um, and I apologize if it's a, a bit indelicate, but uh, being of Jewish descent and going someplace where a lot of the atrocities of the Holocaust occurred, how did that affect you? Yeah, no, it's a very fair question. Um, it's tough. It, it's tough because in one trip I took my father. And we um, we had visited, we actually, what I'm about to describe, we did separately because I went one year and then the next year I took him and he went by himself. But we visited the town, the shtetl, which is a word that you may know, which is kind of like the township that my grandmother grew up in, his mother. And we met a, a man who was not of Jewish descent, who knew my grandmother's sister and her and her children who were all killed during the Holocaust. And he really, you know, we had translators, but he talked us through um, what happened because he knew what happened. And it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, my dad's a pharmacist. And I remember I took him, we were just like walking in a mall or something. And I look up and I see a pharmacy and I thought, God, that should, that, that could have been yours. Um, and I remember speaking with a Polish woman and I asked her what she, you know, what, what did Poland lose? And she was so elo eloquent in how, you know, they, she felt that they just lost so much. I mean, remember Poland was over 10% Jewish mm -hmm. and in the areas uh, where Jews congregated, which were especially the big cities like uh, Warsaw and Lodz, I mean, they were like 30, 40% Jewish. And these were, you know, integrated Jews. These were not the, the you know, with the beards and the, and the, the, the ultra religious, they were part of the fabric of Poland. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, I felt like a, a sadness that, you know, what my family missed, what Poland missed. Um, I mean, you know, the Holocaust, look, it's easy to say it's a tragedy, but it really, it was just, yeah, you know, I mean, as a historian, you may you'll probably appreciate this. I mean, I've always said that you know, over the last 500 years or so, kind of each European power had its own century. You know, mm -hmm. the, the Portuguese had a century, the the Spanish had a century, the Dutch had a century, the the British had a century. 
the 20th century should have been the German century. It should it should not have been the American century. It should have been the German century. I mean, every every scientist, all the biggest scientists, all the biggest uh, inventors, they were all German. Yeah. And yet, boy, do they blow it. <laughs> no. uh, they blow it. And so, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's sad. sad. It is. Uh, completely, you yeah. know, and, and. And just as, a, as an anecdote, you know, we only had one relative survive. Mm. And the one relative that survived was because he was on Schindler's list. Oh, wow. yeah. yeah. So that's our, our, our connection. Now, I will say my family was not uh, impacted as, many, as much as many others. Most of my direct family came before the war. Right. Uh, but those that did not, only one survived. Um, whereas my wife's family, for example, um, her grandmother was one of 10. The, the final two numbers, nine and 10, came to America. One through eight were killed. So every one of the siblings were killed. And um, I think it was like 11 out of 54 of their descendants were not killed. And part of the reason was you're, you're going to die when you hear this. You're going to. So my wife's family, my, my wife's grandmother, she was from a town in Poland, which in Polish is known as Auschwitzum. And in German, they changed the name of that town to Auschwitz. Yeah. Literally, my wife's grandmother's family their hometown was Auschwitz. Man. <laughs> yeah. That is, um, of course, an incredibly heavy topic. And yeah. you know, it's something that, especially as, unfortunately, the the survivors of the Holocaust begin to pass from right. living memory, then the stories are lost. I have noticed in some of my studies, especially in setting the far right the way that I do, that mm-hmm. Holocaust denial is constantly on oh, the rise. So, yeah. of course, I don't want to dwell on this because we you came on to yeah. talk about other things. But I did want to mention it if for no other reason to con- than to combat that because right. this is we're still dealing with the horrendous legacies of that. Now, what's interesting, as, as it appears we're going to transition to the Sephardic story, mm-hmm. is that one could argue that the demographic consequences of the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisition were more severe than the Holocaust. And I'll be glad to you know, kind of work that through, because if you consider that the Iberian Peninsula had over a million Jews in it, and remember, this is in the late 1400s, I mean, some would say the Iberian Peninsula was 15 to 20 percent Jewish, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas Poland, which was the most Jewish per capita, was only 10 percent. You know, Germany was only one percent. And so while the numbers are bigger, take 500 years without the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisition, and the Jewish population is much larger than 15 million uh, you know, w- without the Holocaust, maybe the Jewish population in the world is 30 million. Without the Spanish and Portuguese Inquisition, I mean, the Jewish population in the world is well over 100 million. Right. So it's something to consider. Definitely so. I mean, when you break it down in that way and look at the percentages of population, right. I think that there is a very strong case you can make. Mm-hmm. So I'm ready for you. Where do we begin? 
<laughs> well, let's let's start there. Um, you know, when we conversed via email, we did, yeah. I decided we should probably start towards the beginning of the study, yeah. uh, the story, excuse me, and, and begin with the Golden Age. Yeah, so to, to take it back a little further, what we know is around 70 AD, the Second Temple was destroyed by the Romans, and many Jews were kind of dragged into Europe by the Romans through Italy. We don't exactly know how Jews wind up on the Iberian Peninsula, but what we do know is that throughout Spain and Portugal, and I'll focus on Portugal, there have been remnants of Jewish artifacts found that date to the third century of the Common Era, the fifth century of the Common Era. So Jews have been in the Iberian Peninsula probably from around the time of the Common Era and within a few hundred years after that. What we know, and this is when we start to have more recorded history, is that the Moors or the Muslims came to the Iberian Peninsula and conquered it around 711. And for about 400 years, we have what's known as the Golden Age. And that is a time when uh, Jews, Muslims, and Catholics, Christians lived in harmony. Now, it wasn't perfect, but as a general proposition, most historians would argue that that was a time of real kind of efflorescence. It was a time of tremendous advances for the era. Uh, and a lot of that was as a result of more benevolent leadership by the Moors, the Muslims, than what we ultimately saw from the Catholic forces. The Jews were part of the fabric of society during the Golden They were um, astronomers, cartographers. They were um, goldsmiths, silversmiths, uh, doctors. Uh, a, a lot of, uh, of the, I'll call it, intellectual professions, um, bankers, uh, money lenders. And I'll digress for a second um, because I think it's relevant and it becomes very relevant later on in our conversation. I mean, there's a reason that Jews were involved in finance and banking. And the reason was at some level rooted in, I guess you could say, set the, the notion that you know Christians were better than Jews, at least in Christian theology. And that was that to handle money or to lend money in Christendom was considered below the faithful. Uh, money was seen as dirty. And um, so that was a profession that Jews, and this kind of takes us into more Christian control, but Jews were allowed to uh, partake. Christians weren't allowed to be money lenders, and it wasn't because they were being excluded, it's because it was seen as a dirty profession. So that's how Jews wound up becoming bankers and money lenders, just because it was foisted on them. Another reason why Jews were involved in the intellectual professions is, as you may know, um, 
for for decades, uh, for centuries, I should say, uh, the Christian faithful were not allowed to read. Um, a lot in the clergy felt that they needed to be the conduit to God. And so they needed to be learned if if the faithful could read, they wouldn't be able, the clergy wouldn't be able to be that conduit. Whereas with Jews, you know, if you hear the term Jews are people of the book, um, it's true, Jewish boys and men were forced to read. Mm -hmm. And so, again, this is not a better or worse. I'm, all faiths are beautiful, but that was the reality of it, um, that most Christians were illiterate. And I don't say that pejoratively. It just was the societal norms of the time whereas Jews were forced to be literate. And so that's kind of a background as to why Jews were involved in these kind of more, quote, intellectual, you know, many, they were not allowed to own land, so they couldn't be farmers. Yeah. Um, which were considered the better professions. So that's why, you know, you, when you think about the golden age and Jews being so involved in these intellectual pursuits, at some level it was rooted in anti-Semitism in kind of a backward way. Right. And it is, it's also kind of a hold over from the, the uh, also part of the good nature, the Al-Andalusian uh, right. Caliphate and just their incorporation into the courtly system, even though they weren't really on par with the, the Muslim elites, yeah. they were able to hold courts in the courts as scribes or like you said, as money lenders right. and everything. Right. Scribes. They knew how to write. Mm -hmm. Whereas our, you know, Christians, were, they didn't know how to write. Again, no criticism. It just, that, that was the society at the time. And, um, but, you know, look, the, you said it. I mean, it wasn't perfect, you know, but, but there was no doubt that it was a real, uh, it was, there was just a lot of harmony between the three faiths. I wish we could get back to that. Yeah, I do too. Um, I do too. Yeah. And so ultimately, uh, should I move to the, you know, in the 1100s, yeah, go ahead. In the 1100s, the Catholic forces started to push out the Muslim forces, and um, it, it, it took some time, but ultimately, the Catholic forces were able to take over control of Portugal and the rest of the Iberian Peninsula. And in the early years of that era, so now we're in the 1100s, the 1200s, the relations between Jews and Christians were fine. A lot of Muslims fled, they didn't stay. They weren't forced out by the way at that point, but they just left. And so the Muslim population dropped dramatically. Uh, so relations were, were, were mostly fine. Uh, Jews continued to be um, important parts of the economy. And that really kind of took off into the 13 and 1400s. The period we commonly call the Reconquista. Exactly. That's exactly right. And during that era, as the Catholic forces are conquering the Iberian Peninsula, um, we see that they're also starting to engage in 
exploration of the world. And Portugal was intricately involved in those. So, you know, by the 1400s, the Portuguese and the Spanish, but we'll focus on the, focus on the Portuguese, were starting to explore the world. And Jews were intimately and intricately involved in those conquests. Or, I mean, they were conquests in a way. I mean, the reality is. Mm -hmm. um, we visited a town, for example, called Tomar. And in Tomar, the Jewish community was a very large percentage. And Henry the Navigator, it's a someone you may know, that's where he lived. He was the son of one of the Portuguese kings. Um, and he was very tight with the Jewish community who helped him dramatically, uh, both fund, um, I guess fund financially and fund intellectually mm -hmm. the, the, the explorations of the Portuguese nation. If you go to Lisbon where we visited, there's a beautiful, uh, discoveries plaza it's called. You see that iconic statue with all the navigators, a scene looking out to, to the um, body of water in front. And then there's a huge map on the ground, beautiful inlays. And it shows all the places that Portugal had explored. It was before 1495 or six. Jews were critical, critical to those explorations. Um you know, there's a lot of focus on Spain because obviously Spain is, was the larger nation. Right. Um, but Portugal was a massive, just one of the biggest seafaring nations around the time. And Jews were part of that in a very, very significant way, which is part of the reason why there was a lot of ambivalence amongst the Portuguese king who did sign the edict of expulsion to expel the jews and if you want we can jump to that era yeah let's do that so that would be the alhambra decree no so the, okay no well stated so let's let's break that up so because it is very interesting so in 1492 the spanish king and queen issued the alhambra decree Ironically, the same day that Columbus set sail for the New World. And there are rumors that he may have been of Jewish descent. Um, we won't go there, but that's another conversation. Yeah, <laughs> I don't mind going there, but, you know, it, it's a whole other. And, um, and so that's in 1492. So what happens? Spanish Jews need to figure out what to do, where to go. They can convert, and many did, many did, um, or they could flee, and many fled into Portugal. And Portugal did accept them as they were fleeing across the border. Now, there were certain rules and regulations. They were supposed to come in and then leave, but be that as it may, at some level, Portugal was glad to have them. There were some tensions, but they were glad to have them. But in 1495, so three years later, the uh, king of Portugal dies and his son ascends. And his son wants to marry 
the king and queen of Spain's daughter. Um, because remember, the Alhambra decree does not apply to Portugal. That's a Spanish decree. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so the Portuguese king wants to marry the Spanish king and queen's daughter. And they say, okay, but you need to expel the Jews. In the final analysis, Spain was much more gung-ho about the, the, the expulsion of the Portuguese. The Portuguese, the Portuguese king, King Manuel I, he was really not that interested in this act. So, you know, the Alhambra decree was not only the expulsion, but it was the imposition of the Inquisition yeah. in Spain. In Portugal, that's not what happened. He, uh, King Manuel did sign the Portuguese expulsion in 1495-6, but it was only after he passed that the Portuguese Inquisition went to effect which was in 1536 so it was a very different uh, approach the portuguese inquisition at first ultimately the portuguese inquisition became brutal but at first for the first 40 years under king manuel it was a lot of winking and nodding and um, i mean there were some horrible moments and we can talk about that in lisbon um but there was some ambivalence in by the king of King Manuel about. Yeah. That's really interesting too, mm -hmm. because he had freed uh, Jewish captives who had were made captive under the reign of, of John the Second when he came to into office at the king or not office but ascended right, yeah. to the throne. Sure. Um, so that is uh, a very interesting and. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I, I didn't know that. That being said, I mean, look, in 1497 in Lisbon, for example, in the Rocio Square, which is a beautiful uh, location in, in central Lisbon, there was a mass baptism where they like herded all these Jews into uh, the square and started, you know, throwing water on them. And, you know, they were baptized. And then in 1503, Three, there was what's known as the famous Lisbon Massacre, where 3,000 Jews were killed. Um, because what happened, and what's really interesting about the Inquisition, um, even though the Inquisition wasn't in effect yet in Portugal, even if someone converted, they were still under suspicion. And what made it very hard is that that may have been fine for the first generation, but for successive generations, they were under suspicion. Right. The notion of old Christians and new Christians. And so for so many of these converts, who many of whom were sincere in their conversion or their descendants who didn't know from Jewish, anything Jewish, because they, you know, th their grandparents had converted. And so, you know, you had this notion of old Christians and new Christians, and that became very hard for Jews because what wound up happening, and now I'm moving into the Inquisition era, is that 
you know, look, a lot of the Inquisition, yes, it was rooted in the desire to unify the nation under Catholic forces. I think there were some that were genuinely interested in that, but a lot of it had to do with money. Because the reality is, you know, Jews, there was a lot of debt to Jews over the years through the explorations and otherwise. But also, if one was successfully condemned by the Inquisition, there was confiscations. And under many inquisitors, the confiscations, uh, the, the, the ones that turned in the Jews, they would get a percentage of the confiscation. Yeah. 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 In a lot of ways. It, it, and it it seems to be that way throughout uh, when we're looking at a lot of these pogroms and expulsions and massacres from this right. time period, that it is in some ways goes beyond religion into wealth redistribution to reclaim land for the new sovereign uh, to give to loyal followers who happen to be Christian and all these other things so that they're either. And that is the constant struggle when you're looking at it historically. Is this really motivated by, and I'm, the answer is, of course, both, but is it really yeah. more motivated by a, a religious hysteria, you know, the, the old canard of, of charging Jews with deicide and all oh, these yeah. other things, or is it more because of the economic pressures? Right. And I think you said it, uh, sir. <laughs> I think it's it's probably both. And for some, it's one and others, it's other. Um, and you mentioned deicide, which is, you know, the notion that Jews killed Jesus, which we know is not true. Vatican II exactly. declared it's not true. But the notion of deicide, I learned through my trip, you know, uh, to Portugal, the notion of deicide was much more uh, well distributed in Spain than in Portugal. Interesting. And so that's why, again, there was early ambivalence about the expulsion in Portugal and not so much in Spain. Um, but, you know, during the Inquisition in Portugal, which ultimately went into effect in 1536, you know, people were turning on each other. Families were turning on each other. Neighbors were turning on each other. And, and it could be the smallest of things that would be used to accuse someone of still of apostasy, you know, uh, of being yeah. not Christians. It could be that, you know, you were seen lighting candles on Friday night, which is a Jewish practice, or you wouldn't eat pork, because that's a Jewish practice. Uh, you're changing your clothes on Friday nights. You didn't go to church enough. You didn't work on Saturday. You didn't say the name of Jesus in church. I mean, yeah, it, it's, again, you know, it's the, the Inquisition was against new Christians. It wasn't even against Jews because it wasn't even the notion of Jews. Jews didn't exist anymore after the expulsion of the Inquisition. So it, it, it's a strange beast uh, because in the end, it was all about the Inquisition was about keeping the faith, the purity of the faith. So you weren't so much being charged as uh, with being a Jew. It's you're being charged with keeping Jewish practices as a Catholic. Yeah. That's well, and, interesting. And in that way, it is also kind of a attack on a culture. Um, uh, again, beyond a religious practice, but because if you are doing things that are culturally seen as othered, right, um, which you know can be read at the time as Jewish or or non-Christian. Oh yes. Which because they had already 
pretty well exploiled the Muslims then defaults to the Jewish. Right. You know, it, it, it is this self-reinforcing practice and we see that during these these times of hysteria much like in the witch trials that occur later that you know people who probably aren't even jewish whether culturally or ethnically get caught up in this and are killed too not that that makes what happens to to the jews any less terrible but it's just that becomes a an excuse to carry out these violent behaviors right and then there's the question of what happened to those that were brought before the Inquisition courts. And, you know, you, you're going there. And so I'll go there. Um, I mean, in the end, the Inquisition courts were religious courts. But the punishments, to the extent there were punishments, were done by the civil authorities. And, you know, what would so often happen is someone would be accused. They would be arrested. And then they would be tortured until they admitted that they were engaged in, quote, Jewish practices. And again, this was so often descendants of Jews. You know, the Inquisition didn't go into effect in Portugal until 1536. So how many could say at that point, yes, I was even alive, you know, when Judaism was allowed in Portugal? And so, so many of them, it just wasn't true. Um, And, you know, the torture could be brutal. Um, But again, a lot of it was more about confiscation than anything. But then there was what we know as the auto da fe's, which were the public burnings. Yeah. And, you know, when I, during my trip, I went to uh, the town of Evora, which was a beautiful town, by the way. It was the second city. And I was taken to not only Inquisition, the Inquisition court area, but the Inquisition plaza, which is now the most charming, like, um, public square with great restaurants and places to sit and enjoy. But, you know, right off of the... Uh, that that plaza was the Jewish quarter where Jews lived pre-Inquisition and then many stayed post-Inquisition, um, even though there were new Christians. But the church is at the end of this very charming plaza. And that's where you, I mean, this is an example of, of what happened in many cities. You had these massive processions of, you know, these Jews being brought into the plaza and they're dressed looking like i mean i guess the best way i could say them like like dunces you know these red these red and yellow coats were put on them and these Hmm. almost like dunce caps and um and then they were i'm sorry to interrupt but do you know the significance of the outfit it was all about kind of the humiliation of it and it wound up being the inspiration for the Jewish star that Hitler used. Oh, man. Yeah. And then, you know, they were put on crosses. And, and by the way, the town was forced to come and to watch. Yeah. And then they were literally burned at the stake. Yeah, they were literally burned at the stake, which was, you know, brutal, absolutely brutal. Oh, definitely. And and now the reality is, 
at least in Portugal, the vast majority of those that were brought to the Inquisition court were not burned at the stake, were not subject to auto da fe. Um, but, but, it, but it happened. I mean, it happened. And the, you know, the, the paintings of it, the subsequent depictions of it, just brutal. I mean, just absolutely, and heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, Portugal and Spain, they lost so much. Um, you know, I, I spoke with lead, the lead when I, during my trip in Lisbon and otherwise. I spoke with elected leaders and lay leaders. And, you know, there's now kind of a, I mean, as you may know, both Spain and Portugal have now passed laws giving descendants of Sephardic Jews, quote, the right of return. They can actually apply for citizenship. Um, and, you know, in talking to these leaders about this, I mean, there's this kind of recognition that, you know, it, a, a lot was lost. I mean, again, this wasn't 1% of their population. This right. And 15, 20% of their population. Um, now, it wasn't the, execute, the, the extermination like we saw in Nazi Germany, but, you know, a huge percentage of these people left. You know, they left for Holland, they left for Morocco, they left for Turkey and Greece, mm -hmm. they left for England. Um, that's a brain drain. It is. It is. brain drain. And, you know, some would argue, and, you know, I don't want to, I'll, I'll just say it, some would argue, you know, that Spain and Portugal, they're kind of ascension started to end um, with the expulsions, um, their power in the world. You know, if you march into like the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, Spain and Portugal, they're, they're waning. Um, and there are some that would say the expulsion was kind of the precipitating factor of it. You know, you expelled 10 to 20% of your population you know, who has tremendous access to intellectual power and financial wealth, you know, I, I hesitate to say it, but, you know, you, there might, there may be a causal connection there. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would definitely say that that, that yeah. had to have played a role because you're right. I mean, it is a tremendous loss, a uh, brain drain, as you say, and, and then you are devoting resources because we have to remember that, and I don't know as much about the Portuguese yeah. Inquisition as I do the Spanish, but I do know that both Inquisitions go on for centuries. Centuries. Oh, yeah. yeah and, you're right. and devoting those resources to what is an, essentially um, not just an internal policing mechanism that is constantly recycling, but also they're employing this in their empire. Um, I know the Portuguese enact Inquisition in India, just like the Spanish do yeah. in Mexico and, and other Latin American I'm countries. So, glad, so, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because the Inquisition in Goa, in, which was in India, was considered the most brutal in the entire Portuguese empire. I mean, it was worse in Goa than it was in Portugal, Portugal proper. Brutal. I mean, the Inquisitors in Goa were brutal. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know a whole lot about that. So if you have a little more, you could share. I actually, I, I actually don't because we didn't get to travel to Goa yet. Hopefully, we will. But what I do know, based upon my recent trip to Portugal and learning more about their Inquisition, uh, expulsion Inquisition, is that the the Inquisition in Goa was 
it just happened to be that the inquisitors remember those were like you know the the, the church figures yeah um, that were they, they were just much more ruthless than they were in Portugal proper and so you're you're right you're absolutely right there's a lot of resources i mean look one could even argue you know moving to Nazi era. i mean hitler spent so much time exterminating the jews if he had just focused on the war effort who knows you know yeah. in 1944 as he's losing the war that was the deadliest era for jews in the entire era of world war ii he's losing the war and yet he's he, you know nazis are in a frenzy killing at that point over the summer of 44 hungarian jews at a massive rate it was like 10,000 a day you know it was, it's it's what you said benjamin you're a historian it, it was just a, it, it was a diversion of resources they didn't they couldn't afford right yeah that's where you see just how and that's why, amongst several reasons, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but uh, yeah. I have, when I went to Germany and we went to the, the when I went to the two concentration camps sure. that I did, any notion that the, the Germans didn't know what was going on is completely false because they would have to be the people would have to march through the city square yeah. in often cases to get to the concentration camp. Yeah, it turned a blind eye. I mean, right, no exactly. Um, but that just proves how ideologically driven this attack against the Jewish populations. And let's also not forget um, uh, homosexuals and other targeted oh, yeah. populations oh, either. Roma, um, gypsies, for sure. Yes. Oh, no. I mean, the reason why Jews are talked about more is because of their numbers. Right. But homosexuals were brutalized, I mean, just as badly. And, and gypsies or Roma, how they're, they're called communists. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, just yeah, but you're right that the, the sheer we're losing this war, and we don't know that we can win it, but we are going to win the ideological one and oh, get yeah. rid of our eternal enemies. Yeah, and that's just, the hatred of it. Just, yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring up Germany, and I, I, I would, you know, I, I did an episode on Germany as well, and we Portugal, and, and I will say this, um. I do think that the people of Portugal, the people of Spain, obviously the Inquisition so many years before that, uh, like like the people of Germany, I mean, I, I, I do get a, an overall sense of a very welcoming spirit. Um, you know, when I was in Portugal, the people were thrilled to have us uh, there. And... Yeah, there's a lot of effort to revitalize and reinvigorate Jewish um, history, Jewish life, Jewish culture. Portugal passed a, you know, we talked about this, a citizenship law in 2013. It's much broader than Spain's. Spain's has a sunset, Portugal's does not. And so, um, I mean, I think there's a reason that. Portuguese visit Portugal, Portuguese tourism w sponsored our trip because they're very sincere. Um, they want uh, to build up Jewish heritage tours. And I was, you know, so honored to be able to go literally from the top of Portugal to the bottom, from Porto to what's known as the Algarve, which is, you know, the, the coast, the bottom of Portugal, Faro and surrounding areas, which are just beautiful, by the way. 
Um, and look, Portugal is beautiful to visit regardless. But, you know, if you're someone who likes history, Jewish or not Jewish, adding that, that Jewish flavor to your trip is, is absolutely worth it. Because there are a lot of great things to see um, in Portugal as it relates to its Jewish history. I, I would love to go. Um, again, I, I'm just like I suspect you are. I'm bit by the travel bug, so I just like going oh, yeah. places and, and trying to learn what little I can about the history while I'm there. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody that I've talked to, you're, you're, the, you're the first guest I've, I've had on specifically talking about uh, the history of Portugal. Right. But another guest had traveled there and mentioned how wonderful it was. So it's definitely been sure. added to the, the list of all the other places I would love to go. And if I can, do we have time for another quick story? Go right ahead. Okay. So, um, you know, the, the Inquisition in Portugal officially ends in 1821. Uh, I mean, in, really, by the 1750s, 60s, there really no more Inquisition trials, but it was officially declared over in 1821. And what's so interesting about Sephardic Jews of Portuguese and Spanish descent is that they still felt very, very connected to the Iberian Peninsula. And many started to return to Portugal and Spain, specifically Portugal, for the purposes of our conversation. What's so interesting is that in the 19, early 1900s, um, you start having kind of a resurgence of kind of, well, maybe I'm a descendant of of Portuguese Jews amongst those that were still in Portugal. And there was a man named Barros Bastu who lived in Porto, which became the second city of Portugal and is still today. And he decided to return to the faith and work to kind of reinvigorate and develop a Jewish community. Well, around that same time, there was a man named Samuel Schwartz who was Polish. He had moved to Pol- to Portugal. Uh, he was involved in, um, I guess, mineral, mineral exploration. And he stumbled into a town called Belmonte. And it wound up that there was a group of people in that town that were the true crypto or hidden Jews. You may have heard that term of crypto Jews. And yeah, and and this group of Jews in Belmont were maintaining Jewish customs for 500 years. And it took a while for the Jews of Belmont in the 1920s to accept and trust Samuel Schwartz, but they did. Their practices were by no means... um, as many Jews would recognize them today, but they only married each other um, and they lit candles on Friday and they would say a version of Jewish prayers and make a bread that was clearly their own. And Barosh Bashtu wound up working with that community to bring them back into um kind of the traditional Jewish people. It was hard, um, but that was kind of the beginning of the resurgence of the Jewish community in 
Portugal in Porto. Sadly, uh, Bashtu was, he was an army um, officer and it's hard to know exactly who turned on him, but someone turned on him mm. and accused him of being a homosexual. And he was brought before a military court. And the allegation that he was a homosexual was found to be not accurate, as if that would have been a problem. But back then, you know, yeah, that was, that was the era. But he was um, he, he was found to have committed the the crime of circumcision. And so because of that, because he was circumcising, he was involved in the circumcision, you know, Jew, circumcision is a Jewish practice yeah, yeah. Um, of these adult men from Belmont because they were not circumcising. Um, and he lost his army rank. And it was, you no, know, it was, it was quite devastating to the Jewish community. Um, but he helped to build what's known as the Kadori synagogue in, in, Portugal. I was honored to interview his granddaughter. And ultimately, he was rehabilitated. And I think it was 2012. Of course, he had passed. Yeah. He was known as the Portuguese Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah, I was I was actually when you were talking about the being brought before the military, I right. thought of Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah, which was happening in France. Yeah. Portuguese Dreyfus. But now that that you know, I was at the, that community, and it's it's vibrant, it's it's alive. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of Ashkenazi Jews, a lot of Sephardic Jews, uh, but now and a lot of Jews who are returning to Portugal um, yeah. because they now can get citizenship rights, and Portugal's beautiful, and it's still in the EU, and you know there are a lot of reasons um, to do that. And it, it's interesting, you know, it all comes around. Um, we talked about Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the individuals I interviewed in Jamaica was a woman named Anna Enriquez. Um, and she, her father was able to trace, and they're pretty convinced that um, trace her roots all the way back to Portugal. Enriquez is a well-known Sephardic Jewish name all the way through this Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, as you know, a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but a decent number of Jews were involved in pirating in the Caribbean in large part because they wanted to get back at San and Portugal. I did not know that, but that that's does make why, sense. Yeah, that's why they became pirates. Anyway, so she's a descendant of the Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. She recently moved back to Portugal. She accepted citizenship, and she is now living in the Algarve, which is the beautiful coastal area in the very south southern portion of Portugal. So it all comes around. Here we have this Jamaican uh, Jewish woman who now lives in Portugal. She's come home. It does. That That's an amazing story and a very uh, heartwarming story, I think, to yeah. kind of begin to wrap up our conversation because yeah, sure. I've had you on here for about an hour. I, I wanted to say that it really does show the triumph of the human spirit to, mm. to not only, it's a shame that they had to, but to, to have the fortitude and ability to stick to their faith for 500 years oh, of outlaw and persecution is yeah. just, that is yeah. a story that I'm glad that you shared that people can hear. Right. Um, and 
you you know you said at one point that you weren't sure the how long we could talk about this and we talked about it for about an hour um, right. right but i i will say this you know if you haven't been to portugal benjamin or, or your listeners it's a beautiful country it really is and if you're interested in jewish history or frankly catholic history i mean the cathedrals are absolutely majestic i mean if you're interested in faith-based tourism i guess you could say uh, there's a lot of it in, in portugal um and you don't have to be the most devout person to kind of enjoy the 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 history of faith uh, on the uh you know in portugal the iberian peninsula yeah absolutely not um i want to respect your time and let you i'm sure you have much better things to do today no, this continue this conversation. i feel like i spiked i completely monopolized but, you know, <laughs> that's I okay hope, I, I hope that your audience and you enjoyed uh my recitation of the portuguese sephiroth and, and how beautiful portugal really is oh they did and tell people where they could learn more and follow you on social media yeah i know for sure so the air land and sea airs on jewish life television sundays at 9 p.m and i will of course uh, put a link to that in the show notes please it would be jltv.tv slash if you want to watch our episodes on demand you can follow me on social media at brad pomerantz b-r-a-d P-O-M-E-R-A-N-C-E. Jewish Life Television is also on social media at Jewish Life TV. There you go. And please check that out. There are the I've seen one episode of the TV show. There are more that I'm going to yeah. go back and check. It's it's incredibly well done, as you would expect oh, from listening you. to Brad talk. Yeah. And, and if you want to learn more about Portugal, just go to visit Portugal's website, which I think is visitportugal.com. I'll put that in the, the note, show notes too. Yeah. Um, you know, and I often extend this because to my guests, because I think that you have so much more to share and I know you have yeah. TV shows, so I would encourage people to watch those as well. But if you would be willing to come back on at some point Ooh. and talk about the 21st century and, and the role oh, that Portugal yeah. played in, in saving some of these Sephardic Jews from the Holocaust, I would love to That's have you. Right. That's right. Yeah. It was actually the Ashkenazi Jews coming oh, from sure. Europe, but yes. yeah, it'd be my honor. It would be my honor. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, so thank you Brad. Um, and thank you for listening to the Evoking History Podcast.